the way we jump into the text, the way we always jump into the text, uh, is to, well, let's talk to our kids first. Uh, and I'm going to let you all know what this passage is going to be about and then what the sermon is going to be about. So I'm going to tell you all a true story. This is not a story I've told you all before. Uh, and it's crazy because this is one of the craziest stories that's ever happened to us. Uh, you can ask Miss Ryan later if you want. This is true. So we were visiting Niagara Falls. And uh, it just happened like there was kind of this circus thing going on at Niagara Falls where there was this guy, Charles Blondin, uh, who's a famous type tight rope walker. So this guy, if you don't know what Niagara Falls is, kids, it's this, it's this huge waterfall system. And so from one end of the waterfall to the other end of this giant gorge, he ties this tight rope that's like 1,100 feet long. And this guy, we watch this, this guy starts walking, he, he goes out onto the tightrope and he makes it all the way across. And then he does it backwards, he goes backwards all the way back across. And you're like, this is nuts. And then he puts on a blindfold, kids, and he walks across. And then he takes a wheelbarrow, and he takes a wheelbarrow, and he takes the wheelbarrow across. He gets on stilts, those things that like you stand on that make you really tall. He got across on that. Then he goes across and he sits down and he makes himself an omelet. I'm not kidding. Like he really did this. And then he comes back and he says, okay, who wants to go across? That's what I said. I said, me, I'll do it. And I was kind of joking, but they grabbed me and they put me on his back. It was not, and we are going across Niagara Falls on this tightrope and I am screaming at first. Ah, I didn't want to do this. It's not a good idea. And I'm like, I'm bigger than Charles. And we get halfway across, and I'm feeling really good about myself. And so I'm like, I tell my like, Charles, it's really loud. Niagara Falls really loud. I'm like, hey, 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 I got it. I got it the rest of the way. I'm good. And he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, yes. Woo, I'm so excited. I get off his back. I take one step, and I, fall, and I fell. And I died. True story. True story, y'all. You ask me, right? Hey, it is true though. There is this guy, Charles Blondin. He really did do this, and I didn't get on his back. His manager. This is like back in like the 1700s. This is really old. But this guy really did do this, kids, and he really did take someone across. He took his manager across. But how ridiculous would it have been for his friend to get off in the middle of it and be like, "I got it the rest of the way from here." Okay, you die. You would die. Okay, that is what we're going to talk about today. When we get into Romans, and Paul's going to talk to us about this thing called, it's a really big word called justification, which is just, all it is is this thing of, how are you going to get to heaven? Kids, how are you going to get from earth to heaven? It's like this tightrope thing. Uh, how are you going to do it? Like, can you do it on your own? And the answer is no. But let me ask you, like, kids, I really want you to hear this. This is going to be hard to hear, but because this may get personal for you, this is one of the most important things I will ever say to you. Kids, does reading your Bible and saying your prayers, forgiving those who do bad things to you, going to church, does that get you from earth to heaven? This is a really important question. This is real. I want y'all to hear me. I want y'all to get this. I want y'all to never forget it. Does getting baptized, does coming up here and taking communion, does that get you to heaven? That's really important. It actually does not. And this is where, like, well, yeah, well, no. Well, does any good thing that you do, 
get you to heaven? Good. That's the answer. No. The answer is, the answer is no. Nothing we do gets us to heaven. How do we, who does? How? Who does get us to heaven? And what's his, and, and he came, God came down to earth as Jesus. And Jesus lives this perfect life for us. And he dies for us. And he's raised from the grave for us. All of that, all of that he did for you to get you to heaven. All of it. His life and his death and his resurrection. All you have to do is cling to him. That's faith. It's like getting on his back and just holding on to Jesus. And when you get to heaven, God will look at you like you just crossed Niagara. I mean, if you had been there with Charles Blondin and you had gotten on his back and gone across, you could go to your friends and be like, yeah, I've been across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I have. How'd you do it? Well, someone else carried me across. But I did it, but I got across. When you get to heaven, clinging to Jesus, he's going to look at you and be like, you did it. And all you had to do is cling to Jesus. And he does it for you. So you get what Jesus did for you counted to you as if you get the credit for it as if you had done it that is justification that's what we're going to be talking about this morning that's what paul is going to teach us in romans chapter four so uh let's jump in to the reading of the word please stand for this reading that comes from romans chapter four we're going to do the first part of four we're going to do the middle part of chapter four we're going to do the end of chapter four paul says what then shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, or God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, we're making our way through the book of Romans. And in the first few chapters, Paul just, he, he lays it on really hard uh, to the church in Rome that's made up of Jews who have become Christians and Gentiles who have become Christians, and there's infighting between the two of them. And so he's writing to them to explain, once again, the gospel. Uh, and, and he starts off by talking uh, just about the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, that everyone deserves the wrath of God. Oops. And now here he gets to the good news of the gospel. And I, I, I vividly remember uh, an older, wise pastor asking a bunch of us church interns uh, if we would like to, if we would like to meet God. And you know, you just, you know, it seemed an innocent question, and we were just like, well, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, and he said, well, okay, are you sure about that? And then he kind of did this little rehearsal thing when God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt and came down and met them at Mount Sinai. It says this. 
Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking because God had come down on it in fire to us and will listen, do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then Isaiah uh, caught up into heaven in a vision and this is his reaction standing before the throne of God. Isaiah 6 says, and I said, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At the very end of the book of Job, Job chapter 42, God finally shows up to question Job. Job, who's been through all this suffering, who's questioning God, and God shows up in the form of a hurricane. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Into the Bible, New Testament, in Revelation, John the Apostle, John who describes himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John who is one of Jesus' three best friends, John sees the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And John tells us, Revelation chapter 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Because when sinful people stand before God, they want to die. Because as sinners, they are terrified of the holiness and the awesomeness and the brilliance of God. It is sin affects our status before God. And it renders us, sin renders us inexcusably guilty, liable to God's just wrath, deserving of eternal condemnation. So who wants to meet God? Well, Paul, he started to say, he says right here, that unrighteous men, unrighteous men and unrighteous women can stand before the righteous God as righteous. Did you see that? Unrighteous men and women can stand before the righteous God as righteous. Stand before God, not in fear, but expectantly. Uh, ready to receive glory. And these unrighteous Men and women can stand righteous before God apart from obeying God's law. Apart from any good works. Apart from doing good in life. And that kind of talk did not sit well with a lot of people in Paul's day. It was offensive to Jewish Christians in the church. It was offensive to religious, moralistic, Christian Gentile types in the church. That kind of talk, it does not sit well in the church today. Because it's offensive. Because it is that thing of like, wait, wait, are you saying all my efforts are for nothing? All my Sunday mornings, all my prayers, all my Bible study, all my evangelism, all my service, all my charity, all my resisting temptation, all my repenting, all my suffering for the sake of Jesus in the church, it counts for nothing before God. Like that's, You're telling me that stuff really isn't enough to save me. But if someone on death row who has never done these things can accept Jesus on their deathbed and be saved, and Paul says, yeah. And... and that it, Paul knows that that's offensive because people have tried to kill him for teaching it. And he knows the objections because 
He's had uh, every objection to it. He's objected to it in every way before he was a Christian. And he knows false teachers that they show up in the church wherever he goes. After every church he leaves, false teachers show up and pervert this thing, this gospel thing to say, well, yeah, you've you got to bring your own righteousness to the table uh, to be righteous before God. So yeah, you're like, yeah, believe in Jesus, the false teachers will say. Yeah, believe in Jesus. And you do got to keep the law of Moses. So Paul gives a, he knows all of this, so he gives, as he's saying this, he gives a simple, uh, real-world illustration that applies to everyone. Uh, And he gives this in order to answer that objection of how does an unrighteous person stand before a righteous God and hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. And his illustration is Old Testament Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the patriarch. Paul says that Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. And you have to remember who Abraham was, uh, that Abraham was ungodly Abraham. Uh, Abraham, when, uh, when he met God, he was ungodly. God called Abraham out of terrible idolatry. And God says to this pagan, Abraham, you follow me and I promise to give you a kingdom. And you'll be a blessing to the whole world. And it says Abraham believed God and that God counted his faith as righteousness. This is, in Gen- this is the Old Testament, first book in the Bible, Genesis 15. That God counted his faith as righteousness. So Abraham, the pagan idolater, didn't do anything to stand before God as righteous he just believed God. And when it says here, Paul's, Paul's emphasis here, when it says that Abraham believed God and his faith was counted as righteousness, he's, he's not, it, the point is not that he believed in God, although yes, that's true, and he says that later in the passage. It's that Abraham believed in God's promises. He believed the promises that God made to him. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world it didn't come, that promise didn't come through faith it came through the righteousness sorry it didn't come through the law it came through the righteousness of faith so god called abraham to leave his idolatrous nation because god was going to make him a new nation he was going to make him a kingdom and this is like where we can like man well okay so what's a king don't make this difficult don't make this harder like what's a kingdom like what do you have to have to have a kingdom well you got to have a king and you got to have people for the king to rule over, and you got to have land. you got to have a kingdom. And it's not just any kingdom. God promised Abraham that this was going to be the kingdom of the Savior of mankind. That, that Abraham's descendant would be that Savior, would be that promised seed that's given right after that promise of a, a Savior to come, right after the fall. And so God would bless all peoples across the earth through Abraham. Y'all, if a friend of Abraham's, and he probably did hear this, but if a friend of Abraham's had heard these promises, he would have said that thing that we say to each other, like, hey, I don't want you to get your hopes up. Like, I, 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 like let's have realistic expectations here with all the, you know, this promise that God made to you. And we still, in the church, say that kind of stuff to each other, even about these promises, because these promises are so big. It's just too much. But here's Abraham, who is homeless now and wandering, 
no land, and he's childless, which means no people and no king. Abraham gets to be a hundred years old. His wife gets to be 90 years old, still childless, and he still believed God's promise. And God counted that faith as righteousness, not Abraham's works, not because he followed the Mosaic law. And, and, and Paul can anticipate, like, and not because he followed the law, and, he, and Paul can anticipate some very astute person pointing out, well, okay, yeah, but, you know, the law came 400 years after Abraham to Moses. So, like, you know, duh, Abraham wasn't justified by the law, but, you know, now we have the law. So, which is why Paul throws in King David and what David says in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sins are not counted. David did live in that era when God's people had the law and they had law keeping on the basis of his works or by trying to balance the really bad things that he did with some really good things that he also for God and be accepted as righteous by faith in God's promise of salvation. That his sins would not be counted to him. Okay, so we've got to get at this counting thing. Uh, the other day, Ryan asked me, do you want to help the kids with math homework or do you want to walk the dogs in the rainy 30-degree weather? And I was like, dogs? Because I don't like math. I'd rather freeze. And kids, you all need to tell your parents that math is not important. It was made up by the devil. <laughs> so kidding. That's a joke. Y'all are just kidding. It's not. Math is actually super, super important. I'm just not good. I'm just not good at it. I'm terrible at it. I can't help. My kids are so much better than I am. So, but, but a lot of us, when we hear Paul talk about justification and the stuff of like, and counted to him as righteousness, we hear something like non-Euclidean geometry, whatever that is, uh, or orbital mechanics. I had to ask Theo and Wyatt and even what those uh, things are. Okay, it's not, it's not that, but that, like, we hear that, and we're like, oh, this counting thing, oh my gosh. It's not that kind of counting. It's not partial whatever differential equations or set theory, whatever that stuff is. This is, okay, this counting stuff, it's like when you're a kid, uh, you're a kid and, and you say something, like your big brother comes in and says, hey, Maisie, I'll give you all my money if you can make a shot from way over there. And Maisie takes a shot, and she misses, and then she says, okay, okay, that one doesn't count. So that kind of counting. <laughs> Justification is you stand before God, and God looks at your life, which is a total miss, and God says, okay, that doesn't count. Justification is a one-time act. It's a one-time act. It is a one-time declaration by God wherein God does not count your sin. That does not mean that God doesn't count sin. He would be unjust if he just said, okay, you know, forget it, no big deal, we're cool, it's okay. God does count sin. He just doesn't count your sin to you. He counts your sin to Jesus. That's the forgiveness part of this justification stuff where your sins are forgiven. But you can't stop there. We're not, we're not done counting. Uh, it doesn't mean the counting gets complicated. It just means there's more counting going on. Because as glorious as that reality is, it's, it's not enough. Like, 
that part of the equation, that's not even Paul's emphasis here, the forgiveness stuff. He's going to talk more about that, but right here, he says you don't just need to be cleared of your law-breaking, you, you also need the positive credit of law-keeping. And you, you know, that, that's when we ask, okay, now where, where does that come from? Because this is where some people will say, even people in the church will mistakenly say, well, yeah, that's where I come in. Thanks, Charles Blondin. Let me get off. I got it from here. Like, that's my job as a Christian. God forgives me and gives me a clean slate, brings me back to even, and it's my righteousness that gets me the rest of the way. That is not good news. That is not the good news of the gospel. And it's because you are not good enough. It's because you're not enough. None of us are. And so your life, if this is the way you go, your life will be full of insecurity and full of fear and full of despair if you think it's up to your righteousness to get you to heaven because you cannot pray enough and you can't read your Bible enough and you can't obey enough to fulfill all righteousness. But you come back to that question. So where does that positive credit of law-keeping come from? Jesus. It would be like if Jax had said to Maisie, made it. I'll make the shot for you, and then you can keep all my, and then I'll give you all my money. As if you had made it. And Jax would tell you, yeah, I'm not Jesus, right? Uh, and he didn't do that. Uh, now, the count, but that's what it would be like, is the counting and justification, it's not only our sinful life counted to Jesus, and Jesus's perfect obedient life counted to us. That's often what we go, we go with that kind of shorthand version of, okay, so my bad life gets counted to him and his good life gets counted to me. Okay, uh, okay, yeah, that's, that's part of it. Uh, but this is Paul's emphasis here. He says, verse 25, Jesus was, this is the very end of the passage, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So yes, we want to say yes, our sinful life is counted to Jesus, and, and for that verdict, you know, for that, for, for that verdict from God, that declaration from God, Jesus stands before God. Uh, God counts our sinful life to Jesus. Jesus is declared guilty, and he stands condemned before God, and his punishment is nothing less than eternal damnation, which he takes on the cross. He takes the wrath of God there. It's all poured out on him on the cross. Because our sin is counted to him. He's got to pay the penalty. But here's where the good news gets even better. Because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, and because he suffered the wrath of God in our place, all of that together, he completes the work that God had given him to do. Jesus had to come and live that perfect life, and he, ha he had to do that for us, and he had to die for us. Jesus' work was to live and to die for us. And because he perfectly completes all of that work, the living and the dying, Jesus is then raised. He's raised from the dead as God's declaration that Jesus is justified. And, and, and well, how I thought eternal damnation, yes, he takes it somehow miraculously beyond our comprehension. He takes it all on the cross. Jesus was guilty and condemned for our disobedience, but then he was justified and raised because of his obedience, his whole, the whole thing, his life and his death. If he had remained in the grave, 
then Jesus was just another man who died on a Roman cross. But he really did accomplish the work that God had given him to do. All of it. And so it's not a legal fiction when all of that, life, death, resurrection, when all of that, that's counted to us. It's not a legal fiction for God to say, justified, when he looks at you, an unrighteous sinner. What, here, like that thing of like, what does that have to do with us? This is, this is where the counting really, really matters. Jesus' perfect life and his death, his justification and his resurrection, it's counted to us. You, unrighteous, you stand before God and he counts Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. He counts all of Jesus' record to you so your verdict is even better than not guilty. You stand before God as a completely righteous person. Your verdict is justified. It is righteous. And your reward is eternal glory. God's heavenly kingdom. It's this idea of, if this helps too, it's this idea of substitution. But you gotta, you got to go all the way. I say if Christ's death was substitutionary, then his resurrection was as well. Like I get all of it. All of it's counted to me. His whole record is counted to me so I can stand before God and God can look at me and say, this counted to you, therefore you are justified. Uh, all that kind of talk is supposed to jolt us when we hear it. And, and it jolts us because we hear it and once again we realize, I've been, re- okay, okay, okay. I've been relying on, imagine this. Imagine Jesus came as a military leader. And if you want to live, only the courageous, only the strong are going to get saved. Imagine Jesus came as a philosopher. And he said, if you want to live, follow me. That's not good news. Because only the smart, only the deep thinkers and feelers are going to be saved. Imagine Jesus had come as an ethicist ethics teacher and said if you want to live follow me that's not good news because then only the good only the morally upright uh, are going to be saved salvation all of those that all of that is salvation on your own strength it's based on how good you are and those are exclusive salvations because what about because what about people like me who aren't that strong who aren't that good what about people who are weak what about people who are a mess you know, what about the people who struggle every day? Those are the people Jesus came to save. Traditional religion, postmodernism, take your pick, they both, they both exclude bad people. You know, speaking for myself, both those approaches, they're the worst. They don't do me any good because I'm not a good person. And you may, oh, no, you, you know, I know. And you're like, no, you don't. I know who I am, and I'm the worst. And I've got regrets. I think things, say things, do things. I don't want anyone to know about. And when I hear what both tradition and postmodernism uh, are saying, which is ba- it's basically the same thing. It boils down to live a good life and you'll get what you deserve. Live the way you think you're supposed to live and you'll get what you deserve. That's not comforting and it doesn't save me. Uh, there was... Um, was a New Testament scholar, J. Grisham Machem, uh, uh, reading a book by him right now. And this is, uh, at the very beginning, 
uh, Machen in one of his radio addresses, it's in book form, um, he, says, he says this as he's, as he's speaking to both believers in the church, unbelievers outside of the church. He says, what I need, first of all, is not exhortation. I need a gospel. I don't need directions for saving myself, but knowledge for the way God has saved me. Have you, in, have you any good news for me? Your, exi- your exhortations will not help me. Which is all the world has to offer. Of Be this. Be whoever you want to be. Do good. Do better. So we can say this. On the one hand, the gospel is, it is the most pessimistic news there is. Like, it's just, just be honest about that. It gives the most pessimistic assessment of man's condition. More than any other religion, the gospel is infinitely more pessimistic because every other religion says you can save yourself. The gospel says we, mankind, we are sinners. And that God is so holy, he could not possibly abide the presence of one sinner tainted with even one sin. There is no other religion that claims you need a rescuer. Every other religion finds the idea of needing someone else to save you, that's deplorable, that's offensive. But Paul says that Jesus is the one who had to enter into our world, had to enter into this present evil age and do everything for you to save you because we cannot possibly save ourselves. Like, we've got to be honest, like, that is pessimistic. And uh, 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 it gets that further accusation of it's also exclusive. Okay, well, here's the optimistic thing about the exclusivity of the gospel. It is an exclusive gospel, but at the center of the exclusive gospel is the only inclusive, exclusive Savior there is. And this is why it's the only good news that there is. Because this salvation, it's only for the weak. It is exclusive in that sense of it's only for the sinful. It's only for the broken. It's only for the suffering and the dying. It's only for bad people. That's why it's so inclusive is because we're, <laughs> we're, we're all bad people. And that thing of what, what do you need to be a Christian, all you need is need. And that is faith. And, that, and we're ending with this. That is why Paul says this justification is by faith. The exhortation that you need this morning, if we're going to give you an exhortation, is you need to be exhorted to faith. To come to God with empty hands, empty hands so that you can receive Jesus in his salvation. And you can't receive him if you're coming with any of your good works. The faith that justifies, it's like, it's like empty hands. But, but this is really important. But it's not an empty profession. It is not an empty confession. The faith that justifies, it is a personal trust that clings to Jesus alone for salvation. And loved ones, you don't ever move beyond that. You don't ever move beyond that need. But, and we need to hear that because we back to this thing, uh, we constantly, every, every day, we resort, we revert back to this thing of, ah, Jesus got me, like, thank you, Jesus got me, you know, halfway. Okay, now it's on me. I gotta, I gotta get my, me the rest of the way there. The faith that justifies is a faith that repents, which again is just turning from, yeah, turning from your sin, but that most explicitly, simply looks like turning from yourself. Turning from yourself again and again and again, turning from ourselves and turning to Jesus. That's the faith that justifies. And that's the good news of the gospel.
And this good news is for you. Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up uh, our prayers to you. Uh, this thing of, of justification, it can, be, it can be this thing that is easily misunderstood, and it can be this thing that we, we very easily uh, then uh, uh, misinterpret and, and we, we, we don't hear it. Uh, and, and what we tell others is not the truth of it. Father, it, it is, it's so easy for us to want to go back to, I got to do this, I got to do this. It is really, really hard for us to look at someone else and say, you do it for me because I can't. So Father, we ask for faith. We ask for faith again today that we would not rely on ourselves to stand before you and that you faith to believe that you are not looking down on us, tapping your foot with this menacing growl on your face as you look at us thinking we're not good enough father we confess we're not good enough in and of ourselves and so we cling to jesus christ help us to believe that that is enough and in fact all that can truly save us help us again to look to our lord and savior and to trust that he's done what we cannot do and then tomorrow when we wake up and we start trusting in ourselves again help us to look back to jesus Help us to encourage one another in that faith, we pray. Help us to call others to that gracious faith because it's for anyone that wants it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.